Well, as many of you know, uh, after college, I was sent through a mission organization to China. I was there for over two years, and one night, six of my coworkers and I, my American teammates, we were in the crowded shopping district in the city. And so there were people all around us, and we were getting ready to leave to go home, so we were getting into a taxi, and as I was stepping into my taxi, one of my coworkers grabbed my shoulder. It was Laura, and she said, Mark, Mark, do something. And so I turn around, and there's a small mob of people viciously beating someone. And so as I got closer, I noticed that it was actually a small female. And so at this point, I intervened immediately, and, and, and we, we got her up, and, and I still remember the, the loud voices of these men and women who were attacking her, saying, Buguanni, Buguanni, which in Chinese means, this doesn't concern you, this doesn't concern you. And so we, we take her, and, and we, we guide her into to the taxis, and at that point, as I'm kind of carrying her, half carrying her, and she's half walking, I notice that she has been sliced with a knife from the center of her forehead back behind her left ear. And there was about a quarter-inch gap in between the skin and her, as she walked and as we moved up and down, her scalp was just moving back and forward and squirts of, of blood were just gushing out intermittently. And so we get into the taxi and at this point I'm like, man, I don't even know if this girl's going to survive. We get to the hospital, I take her up to the, kind of the ER, but it's rural China, so it's not really an ER. And so I drop her off. We get her into the hospital. I, I, I speak with the doctor. I said, do you think she's going to survive? And he was like, I, yeah, I'm not sure. And so uh, I left, and then a couple days later, I returned just to you know, see if she survived. And surprisingly, she not only survived, but she was, she was doing okay, and she was coherent. And so I, I went in, and, and they let me come in, and she was completely coherent. I was able to talk with her. I sat down, and I looked at her, and the first thing I said was, you should be dead. Well, how, why do you think you're still alive? And the Lord opened up an opportunity for me to share the gospel, but that question, that question of, why am I still here? A lot of folks that go through this near-death experience, a lot of people that maybe are in an accident, and, and all, every, all kind of objective observers would say, well, they didn't have a chance of survival they should have died. And then they make a full recovery. And many times the, the, the response to them or the question they're, they're asking themselves is, well, why did I get a second chance? I should be dead. Why am I still alive? And it's not just those who have gone through a near-death experience, but also I was talking with uh, Greg Adams just a couple weeks ago, and he said there's a number of, or at least a couple elderly people in his life, and they, they have come to him, and they're nearing the end, and they're saying to Greg, well, why am I still alive? Why am I still here? And this isn't just a question for the elderly, and it's not just a question for those who've gone through a near-death experience. This is a very important question. In fact, this is the question that all of us need an answer to. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Why do I even exist? And it is this very question that our text this morning addresses. It addresses this very directly. So if you have a Bible, please open it to Philippians. It's the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 18b through 26. And here Paul writes, in 18b he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that, you, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So this morning I have three points for us based upon this text. Point one, deliverance is coming. Point two, which I believe is really the primary point of this text, is we exist to exalt Christ. And lastly, point three, fruitful ministry and paradise. So again, the three points I want us to hit on this morning are one, deliverance is coming. Two, we exist to exalt Christ. And lastly, fruitful ministry and paradise. So point one, deliverance is coming. So last week, James, which I was in the nursery last week, but I, I read James's sermon, and very well done. I was really encouraged by that. But uh, last week, so James covered our preceding verses in which Paul ends in rejoicing in the gospel. And he's rejoicing that the gospel is advancing. So some are preaching Christ out of goodwill and love, and others out of rivalry and selfishness with intention to harm Paul. But Paul was still able to rejoice because Christ was being proclaimed. And his rejoicing continues in verses 18 through 19 where Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So now there is debate among scholars as to what exactly Paul meant by this phrase at the end of verse 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. And he's actually, and all scholars more or less agree that what Paul is doing here is he's verbatimly quoting Job 13, 16, this will turn out for my deliverance. So I think that's even initially a little bit helpful as he's seeing Job's experience in light of his circumstances, Paul's circumstances. So some believe Paul is referring here to temporal deliverance, meaning that he will be physically released from prison and delivered from the harassment of those envious brothers seeking to harm him. Others believe Paul is not referring to temporal deliverance, but, uh, but rather deliverance, from, uh, deliverance through death and subsequent eternal life. For later in the passage, Paul says to die is gain. And then he says to depart and to be with Christ is far better. And lastly, some would see Paul's deliverance here as more properly interpreted, not as deliverance, but more as vindication. Meaning that Paul's main point isn't deliverance from his temporal circumstances, but rather that Christ and his gospel will be further proclaimed and vindicated through his either release or execution. So regardless of exactly what Paul meant by deliverance, he did know that whether he was released or whether he was executed, Christ would be exalted. And Paul has confidence that this will be the case because of two reasons. Because of the Philippians' prayer and because of the help from the Spirit of Jesus. So an important note of application here for us is that when you're in the midst of a trial, when you're in the midst of a 
time of suffering like we see Paul here, we can take comfort in the fact that, one, the Spirit of Jesus uh, is present. Romans 8, verses 26 through 27 say that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so even if you feel as though you're not getting the prayer that you need, even if you feel like you are in just total disarray, you're discombobulated, you're not sure what to think, what to do in the midst of your circumstances, things are difficult, you can trust that even if you can't articulate it, even if you don't know how to pray, that the Spirit himself is interceding on your behalf. And then secondly here we see the importance of others praying for us in the midst of our circumstances. So are you going through difficulty? Then ask some believers, get a hold of some believers and have them pray for you. Often in Paul's letters, he's, he's petitioning for the prayers of the churches that he's planted. And Paul had a strong conviction that this prayer works. And so we have this supernatural gift in prayer available to us 24-7. And unfortunately, myself included, so often we, we don't utilize this amazing gift in prayer. So again, point one, deliverance is coming. So we see in the first few verses of our text this morning that deliverance for the Apostle Paul was coming. Whether this was through his release or through his execution, Paul wasn't really sure. But Paul was sure that Christ would be, his, would be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death, which leads into our second point this morning, and that is we exist to exalt Christ. So moving forward into verse 20, Paul writes, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now here Paul, he may have been referring to the upcoming trial regarding his current imprisonment. And Paul's prayer was that he would in no way be ashamed, but that he would have full courage to proclaim the gospel, just as he did before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. In the same way, Paul's hope is that he won't shrink back, his hope that, he won't, that the gospel won't be disgraced, it won't be disgraced through him, as he is brought before Caesar or before the court in Rome. And knowing full well that his trial could result in his release or his execution, Paul declares that whether he dies or that whether he lives, that Christ will be honored in his body. And then, directly succeeding this verse, Paul says perhaps one of his most famous lines, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so there it is. When you look at those two verses, Christ being honored in his body, whether by life or by death, and then to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right there, you have the answer to our question, the ultimate question. Why do you exist? Why are you still alive? The answer is very simple. You exist to exalt Christ. Put simply, the reason that you're alive is to make Jesus look good. It's very simple. That's why you're on earth. That's why you're still alive. God is keeping you alive 
for the purpose of making Christ look good. Through the way you live, through the way you talk, through the way you write, through the way you live your life publicly and privately, by making Jesus look good, you are fulfilling your purpose. So while I was uh, living in the Arabian Peninsula, I was there about six months, I, I met a Saudi convert. And that is obviously extremely unusual. So a Saudi Arab convert, his name's Rami. And it was uh, about a year or two before I had met Rami. He was in his early 20s. Um, but he was in Saudi Arabia. And he was, this was really a course of, I think, a year or two. He was beginning to really struggle with Islam and the teachings of the Quran. And saw a lot of inconsistencies and was really struggling to really believe it. And wanted and was searching for something else. And so he had obviously heard different things about Christianity just through TV and whatnot. And so one night he was actually able to download the New Testament online. So he downloaded the New Testament and he stayed up all night reading it. Finally fell asleep and woke up convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. And the Lord saved him. He converted him. And so Rami and I, we, we would meet on a regular basis. We'd meet weekly. And I remember on one occasion he told me, uh, he had a lot of brothers and sisters, and he said, you know, if my brother found out about my faith in Jesus, he'd kill me. I mean, imagine that. And at another time, so, so, you know, again, we were meeting regularly. We were in a crowded food court. And just people all around us, you know, surrounded by uh, you know, women in, in the full Islamic garb and men in the white thobes and the, the traditional Arab headdress, conservative Muslims just all around us. And we were talking about this very thing. You know, the, the fact that, you know, the Christian life and, and what we're called to is really pretty simple. But I remember after saying that, and, you know, both of us agreed on that point, he wrote on a napkin and then he slid it over to me, and in all caps with exclamation points, it said, but it's not easy. And isn't that true? I mean, yeah, of course it's true for a convert from Islam to Christianity in the Middle East. But it's not easy here either. I mean, it's true, yes, it's very simple. We are to obey, and you are to obey and follow the teachings of Jesus. Simple. But living that out is very difficult. I've been a believer, like I said, in some of these persecuted areas, and, and it's, it's difficult for them, but I'm telling you, five years removed, having lived in the States for the past five years now, I'll tell you, it's tough here. I mean, spiritual apathy and lethargy, being hurt by brothers and sisters in Christ, and a big one, there's really kind of an overwhelming kind of theme and trial that's in at times kind of non-ending in my life and has been for the past five years is just the, just kind of being swamped in the workplace. The, the grind of the work week. The, the stresses of the job in a fallen world when things rarely go the way they should. When you're sleep deprived, overworked, burnout, and a customer 
orders a $14,000 medical device and they lose it and they hold you responsible. And in the midst of all this, you're on the phone with customer service and at one point they look at you or they, they talk to you and they say, sir, you need to calm down. Like that's, that's, that's when the rubber meets the road. That's when reality hits to live as Christ. And really, this, this difficulty that, that we go through in the Christian life, this, this struggle that, that is our perseverance, this calling that we have, segues in to our third point. And that is fruitful ministry and paradise. So look with me in verse 22. So here Paul says, If I am to live in the flesh... That means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with, all, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, real quick, to, to prevent any sort of confusion, if you're familiar with your Bible, and depending on your translation, you may come to this word flesh, and that's kind of weird because Paul uses this same word flesh in a completely different meaning in Romans 8, for example. In Romans 8, he's using the word flesh to mean the sinful nature. He's referring to the sinful nature and putting to death the flesh, putting to death the sinful nature in that context. And here, he's simply referring to his mortal body. And so Paul is having this inward debate as we see in the text. So on the one hand, he's chained to a Roman guard all hours of the day, and according to Roman custom, he was physically chained one arm of, of Paul and one arm to the Roman guard. And according to their custom, every six hours, these guards would, would switch out. And then at the same time, he's being maligned and persecuted by these believers that are intending to harm him. And no doubt, when, when you read through just the, the, the list of the persecution, the hardships. Remember in 1 Corinthians, that, or maybe it's 2 Corinthians, that Paul goes through of the beatings and the, 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 uh, the scourges that he received. No doubt his body was racked with arthritic aches and pains. His church plants are riddled with false teaching, gossip, sexual immorality, slander, lawsuits, harsh disputes among believers. And that's just the beginning of it. And he can be freed from all this pain and suffering and he can instead gain paradise. A heavenly home. A heavenly home that's tailored specifically to Paul's tastes and preferences. For Jesus said, there are many rooms in my Father's home and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And in Revelation, oh, and then he says, and then uh, Revelation 21.4, we read that there will be no more death or mourning or crying and pain and the life to come. There will be an immaculate city with beautiful gems and streets of gold and pure streams and lush trees with delicious fruit. There will be the excitement of awaiting this great wedding banquet, this great feast that we'll celebrate with all believers, with friends and family. All who are in Christ will be together, will be eating in uh, commemoration of the second coming of Christ and of his restoring the new heavens and the new earth. All of this is to come. And Paul will also, at this point, receive a new glorified body. 
I mean, that had, that had to be a great hope and comfort to him, one who had been through so much pain, who's, at the near, who's nearing the end of his life. And then also all the homes and brothers and fields that Jesus promised to those who would sacrifice for him in this life. All that was going to come too, not to mention all of the heavenly rewards that are promised to those who faithfully follow and serve Christ. So you've got, on the one hand, the hope of this. And it's, it's no wonder that, that Paul even words it as, for to depart, for his desire is to depart and to be with Christ. Because, oh, that's, that's far better compared to what? Compared to... The other hand, to remain in the body and to remain for him would have meant continuing in his imprisonment and then continuing in ministry in a fallen world. The never, the, nothing really goes exactly as it should. I mean, it's a no-brainer. Choose death, right? It's a no-brainer. But that's not what Paul concludes and here is an important point of our text and an, entire, and an important point in the entire book of Philippians. And that is Paul doesn't base his decision on what most benefits him, but rather what is most beneficial for his converts. So again in verse 24 he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You see the, the other-centeredness of Paul's thinking here? It's not about me. It's not ultimately about what I want. But it's about what's best for you. Elsewhere in Philippians, Philippians 2.2, 2, Paul writes, In humility, consider others as more, what? More significant than yourself. And then later, in that same chapter, Paul gives the, the example, the kind of the, the apex of selflessness, and that is the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. So Paul is then committed, as long as he's alive, as long as the Lord keeps him alive, he's committed to fruitful ministry. And, verse, and then in verse 25 he writes, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul was dedicated to the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. Now, if you're like me, maybe you're thinking, well, you know, of course, this is applicable to the super-apostle Paul, but not me. I'm just a spiritual weakling. I'm just, just trying to get by. I'm a nobody. But Paul states a number of times in the New Testament and also later in the book of Philippians that we are to follow his example. So this isn't just some pie-in-the-sky, lofty example that's, that's, that's impossible for us to attain. But in Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. While you have, and then in 4.5, he says, While you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So we're called, and Paul does this a number of times in the New Testament, we are called to imitate Christ, and in, as we imitate Christ, to imitate Paul. Paul says that in Corinthians. So our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus and really that of the Apostle Paul. So Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. 
often I think we can allow selfishness just to creep into our hearts. We begin to think that the, the body of Christ and all these believers around me exist to serve me, to meet my benefits or to, to, to benefit me. But really, that, that's, that's inverted. Because as we follow the example that we're seeing here in Paul, that we exist to serve each other. We exist to lay down our lives for one another. So it's not, okay, I need to go to church this morning or I need to go to small group or I need to go to this meeting with other believers so that um, I can gain benefit, which that's okay and that's true. But the primary the way that we need to be thinking through this is I need to go there with the mentality to serve, to benefit others. How can I help others in the faith? And that's what Paul says later in this same passage, right? So in the same way, Paul committed to the labor. Yeah, he committed to to labor among them as we read. Last verse here. Verse 25. Convince of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Those are the words I'm looking for. Progress and joy in the faith. So that's, that's what Paul sees as the point of his existence up to this point. As he continues to live, his hope and his goal is to seek the progress and the joy of the faith of these Philippians. And so as we try to work this out into our own lives, really what we need to be asking ourselves is how can I tangibly work to increase the joy and progress of, and fill in the blank of just another believer's name, of this other believer's faith? And so how do you do this tangibly? How do you do this practically? Well, in a number of ways. But I think one of the primary ways, and we see this in our text this morning, is that you can commit to pray for another believer. Pray for them. Pray for their family Pray for them that the Lord would cause their joy and their faith to increase. Practically, I know in our church right now, one of the neediest areas in our church is is nursery. So the Lord sovereignly has given us a church filled with little people. And the neediest people among us are, I mean, let's be honest, are the zero to three-year-olds. And what we need now, and then also the Lord has sovereignly brought to us um, a couple kids with special needs as well. And so that's a way in which we can tangibly serve the body. Many of you are, and praise God for that. But that's a way in which we, we can bless the body of Christ. It's a way we can cause these little ones' joy and faith to increase. And our joy and faith to increase is by, by serving the needs that we have. So again, my encouragement to those who, who like me, are, are feeling... Um, and at, at times very acutely, the, the difficulty of the Christian faith and the Christian life is one, to get engaged in fruitful ministry. And two, to fix your mind on things above. So in other words, meditate on paradise. Rest is coming. Pleasure is coming in the life to come. But in the meantime, as Paul says, in the meantime, as 1 Corinthians 15.58 declares, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. 
Let nothing move you. And always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So again, this morning in review, in our text, we see that one, we see deliverance for the Apostle Paul was coming. And whether that was in life or death, he wasn't sure. But the main thing was that Christ was to be exalted. Which led to point two, we exist to exalt Christ. To live is Christ. So if you're still breathing this morning, if you're still alive this morning, that is what you're called to, to exalt Christ. And finally, point three, fruitful ministry and paradise. So practically, living out what Paul wrote in, in verse 21, to live as Christ, means engaging in fruitful ministry. And it's simple, but it's not easy. Let's pray. Let's pray.